This is Asha Voices. I'm JD Gray. In just a split second, a traumatic brain injury can turn your life upside down. Today on the podcast, we're joined by SLP Elena Davis, who centers her career in speech language pathology around cognition and the brain. Elena combines her expertise of speech language pathology, traumatic brain injury, or TBI, and cultural competence to generate thought provoking stories and publications, like on her Instagram account. There, she puts a spotlight on where TBI intersects with sports and popular culture. She's also a member of the Howard University concussion management team. She tells us about treating student athletes and what she's learned from the experience. Plus, we discuss cognitive styles. Find out why she says recognizing cognitive styles can assist in working toward eliminating racial bias among CSD professionals. I'm JD Gray. This is ASHA Voices. Support for Ash Voices comes from Ash's Office of Government Affairs and Public Policy. Interested in learning more about the changes in healthcare that affect how you provide services? Check out new resources that explain how your skills fit into value-based care and alternative payment models. Learn more at on.asha.org APM. Our guest today is Elena Davis, an assistant professor at Howard University. Elena is an SLP. Her work focuses on what's happening in the brain. Her expertise covers mild TBI, also known as concussion, and other cognitive issues and communication disorders. She offers services and trainings through her private practice, Overall Neuro Rehab, and she brings attention to traumatic brain injuries and what they mean for cognition through her podcast and thoughtfully crafted social media posts. For example, On her Instagram account, she's written about subjects such as rapper and producer Dr. Dre's aneurysm, or former professional boxer Mike Tyson's experiences in the ring. I spoke with Elena just a few days after the NCAA championships, and we began by discussing one of her posts about a college basketball player, Kyle Young. Yes, very interesting story. Um, He just happened to be playing during March Madness on one of the, you know, top teams. So this young man... He experienced a concussion during one of the games on TV, and he had actually experienced a concussion three weeks before that and had been released to play. But when he experienced this one during this game um, a few weeks ago, he's like on the court, holding his head, showing physical signs of distress, and they take him off to the sideline. But he convinces his coach that he is okay to go back. And they said that he was assessed by a physician on the sideline. We're not really sure what all that entails, but we saw that he he played for another in real time, several minutes, but game time. It was probably like one minute and 20 something seconds. Right. But then by the next commercial break, he was out of the game. And so it brought up a lot of questions about following concussion protocols, because we know that the NCAA has these requirements for concussion protocols and all university teams have one. But to what degree are they following it? And so his story was just quite interesting because it ended up being all over TV. And I'm just thinking, like, from a fan perspective, there's a lot at stake. And the number one thing at stake, right, is the player's health. I think in this specific Instagram post, you shared a quote from the coach. And the coach had said, 
you know, quote, he said he wanted to play and gave us the indication that he was okay. Perhaps looking back on it, I could have pulled him and maybe should have done that. But in that moment, I trusted what he said. These are really difficult decisions. You know, this is a senior. Some of these players want to do this their whole life. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, and especially in a high stakes game like that, there's a lot of emotion. And like you said, it's, it's probably something he was so excited about. And he's, I'm sure he's super dedicated, right? And so now he's like, no, I can still play. And that happens quite often. The athlete themselves are like, oh, no, it was just a little ding to my head. I'll be fine. I can push through it. Because these Athletes are some of the most dedicated people ever. (laughs) And so it is a hard decision to make. And then you have like all of these people from up top probably putting some pressure on the coaches and things like that. So, yeah, it can definitely be an emotional aspect to that as well. Do I understand you also assist with concussion management at Howard? Yes, I am a member of the concussion management team. They use an online concussion reporting system and cognitive assessment. And so whenever a student experiences a concussion and they're entered into that program, I receive a notification. And then I will see the student within that 24 to 72 hour time block and then move from there to determine if they need to be assessed, if they need treatment, accommodations. Could you tell me a little bit more about that experience? What's that been like? Very interesting. So we just actually got this new reporting system where I can be notified more immediately because previously I wouldn't get the students until about two to four weeks after they've had their concussion. And so we just got this new system. I do receive the notifications and I'll reach out to the students. The students are actually very compliant. You know, sometimes they get into this mode of you say, well, I think you should, you know, continue to see me for therapy. They're like, oh no, I can, I'm fine. I'm okay. Because they think that it's going to affect them returning to play, but I actually don't get to make that decision. The team physician makes that decision. I can give my input. So the team physician will confer with me, you know, if there's a concern about a student, but ultimately he makes the decision on whether they go back to the game or not, but they may still need to see me for services. I think the the most challenging thing, and I think anyone who who works in university settings with college athletes is getting them to follow through completely with the treatment part. That can be a struggle because they're college students, but they're also, you know, they're college students and athletes and they have crazy schedules and it can be a little difficult on that end. But for the most part, it's been a good process and a good way of monitoring our students. Has it changed the way that you think about any of your work? You know, yes, actually, because I used to be just primarily focused on making sure that I just get them assessed, get them assessed. But now I'm realizing that the the assessment, of course, is important. But my main focus is how successfully are they returning to the classroom, returning to practice in the game and just other things they want to do in their lives. And so it's, it's made me think a lot more about how they will progress as they move forward if they continue to have symptoms. Do you have any um, stories or examples that you might share with us? I had one very interesting student who was in the senior year on a basketball team and was elbowed. 
and experienced this concussion. And this concussion that this student experienced actually shifted a lot for them. The student was having a lot of difficulty with memory and it didn't exactly show up as a severe deficit in the testing, but in person, I could give her a document and then two minutes later, she'd forget where she put it. Or even just in speaking, I had a conversation with her mother and her mother told me that she was a fast talker that she spoke at a very fast rate, but since the concussion, she spoke with a very slow rate. And that's not something that I would have known ahead of time uh, because I'm Southern, so I speak with a slow rate too. (laughs) So I wouldn't think much about that. But when her mother told me that, you know, it made me more aware. She did the full assessment. She, She accepted the accommodations, but I could not get her to come to therapy because she kind of one of the symptoms of concussion too is feelings of depression and a little bit of apathy in some cases. And she was in her senior year and told that she wouldn't be able to continue the rest of the season. And so that kind of just put her in a place where she didn't really want to do anything else. That case actually is what made me be a lot more aggressive in making sure that I am super involved with these students. Um, now I I will be involved from preseason testing, you know, all the way through. I wanted to ask you about another Instagram post. Did I understand this one's been uh, particularly popular? And it uh, comes from the world of boxing. You highlighted a sort of an unlikely matchup boxing match between YouTube influencer Jake Paul and the former NBA player Nate Robinson. Yes, I wasn't expecting to talk about this because I actually had posted earlier about the main fight, which was Mike Tyson and Roy Jones, because uh, we were concerned about the status of Roy Jones because he had experienced concussions previously. However, uh, one of these pre-fights was as you mentioned, between Jake Paul and Nate Robinson. Nate Robinson was a former basketball player who decided that he wanted to go into boxing. And he went into this major fight within a year of training. I did watch his fight and you could just see like that the his form and the way that he was throwing his punches was different than people that you've watched that are a little more trained or I guess, pro, considered to be pro athletes, right? Or like professional boxers. Yeah. And you could hear the commentators because they had Snoop Dogg as one of the commentators. Mm-hmm. And he kept saying, he's not doing any defense. He's just all over the place. And I think that that opened him up to be able to be hit in a way that really took him down, I would say, on the first major hit that he had to the back of his head. Because in boxing, They are trained to be able to take hits in a way that it doesn't hurt them as much. They are trained to have a certain level of defense so that punches don't take them all the way out. But I think he might have just been nervous because this was his first fight. But by the time he got hit the second time, it just completely knocked him out. And so in the post, I described the areas or the lobes of the brain where he was hit. And so his first hit was in the back of the head, which would affect the occipital lobe. And so that first hit probably affected some of his visual acuity. 
And the cerebellum is back there, which helps us with our equilibrium and balance. Because he was, after that hit, you could tell that his balance was not very good. The second big hit that actually knocked him out was on the side of the head, which was more like around the temporal lobe and frontal lobe. When you have damage in that area as well, where the frontal lobe is, there's a lot of motor activity that comes into play that can knock you out or kind of affect also, you know, how you move the rest of your body. But he was just, he just was completely out. You write in your post, a hit with that level of force can cause diffuse axonal injury in which the brain twists around within the skull and damages the nerves in many areas of the brain. That makes me squirm just reading it. Your knowledge of brain injury, has that changed the way that you watch sporting events like this and your ability to can enjoy an event like this, knowing how much damage could be occurring inside the head? Yes. And and I don't know if I would say that it changed because I've always been a bit leery of boxing because I could never understand why someone would want to get hit multiple times. But when I watch that or even mixed martial arts, it makes my heart race. Uh, it makes my stomach turn a little bit because I, all I can think about is what is happening to the brain. So it is hard to enjoy the sports. When you hear of maybe family members that want to play sports. Are you concerned? Do you ever feel like you want to jump in and and share your concern? Definitely. You know, I'm always like, if you need me to test your child, let me know. I can do some baseline testing. So if something, just in case if something happens, I don't want it to, but I can see if there's any changes. I've probably gotten on their nerves a bit, but you know, I'm not against sports at all. I think that, you know, sports are, they're a great way of building social skills and they keep kids busy and things like that. But if they post on social media that something happens, I'm like calling them (laughs) on the side. One of my nieces is a competitive cheerleader and I have tested her baseline testing. She's actually been kicked in the head, but she's been okay but they know that they can call me if they need me. We're going to take a quick break. Support for Asher Voices comes from Ash's Office of Government Affairs and Public Policy. Check out new resources on alternative payment models or APMs. Learn how your services fit into the changing healthcare world and find information about value-based care, including what APMs mean for reimbursement and how ASHA is engaging on issues surrounding APMs. Find those resources at on.asha.org APM. You host a podcast with Shamika Stanford, a fellow Howard University faculty member and a former guest of ASHA Voices. Shamika's work focuses on the intersection of speech-language sciences and the justice system. Your podcast series is called Sunday Dinner with Drs. Stanford and Davis. You alternate weeks and share stories that intersect with your work. Your episodes are called Brain Injury Chronicles, and they include profiles of major stories about brain injury. The second episode it has the excellent title, The Brain That Snitched on the NFL. This episode tells us the story of Mike Webster, a former member of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Can you tell us a little bit about Mike Webster? His story was actually told in the movie Concussion with Will Smith. He was this super strong man who was, they called him Iron Mike because he was like an iron, (laughs) an iron man. But he had experienced 
what they say is probably the equivalent of 25,000 car accidents during his time of playing sports. His was an interesting case because it his passing and the autopsy of his brain led to the discovery of chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE which is a progressive neurological disorder that leads to a form of dementia. The way that this presented in Mike Webster's actions, it just kind of took over his life. He lost his wife and I mean, his children were still around, but they, the memories, some of the memories they have of him are, you know, not in the best light. You know, they saw him tasing himself to put himself to sleep and, he was losing all of his money. And a lot of that is because this CTE is a disorder that actually forms plaques in the brain, similar to Alzheimer's. And it kind of takes away a lot of your ability to problem solve, make good decisions, and to just process information in a typical way. Mm-hmm. It was Mike pretty young when this was happening? He was in his 50s when he passed away from a heart attack. Dr. Bennett Amalu, when he looked at his brain, when he when they first brought his body in, he was like, his brain looks normal. I don't understand. And he was having all these experiences, um, you know, from looking at his medical report. And so when he actually began to slice the brain and look a lot deeper, then he saw these plaques and tangles that should not have been present in someone at his age. It, it really was the brain that snitched on the NFL. So when this when this information came out from Dr. Omalu and him and his colleagues wrote an article about it, the NFL came down on them hard. They wrote counter articles to say that concussion did not lead to CTE, that concussions actually didn't lead to long term effects. And these were also people who were not neurologists (laughs) at all, but there was just a lot of political aspects to that. And so this is when they started to realize that the NFL was actually hiding some very important information from their athletes. The NFL is still working through the aftermath of this discovery. There's currently an ongoing lawsuit between players and the league resulting from brain injuries. The case is centered around a controversial practice called race norming. The way it has been applied in the NFL means that players of different races have different criteria to meet to receive payment for cognitive damages. Some players argue that makes payouts more difficult to obtain for black players. You can hear Elena discuss the subject in her first episode of the Sunday Dinner Podcast. Our conversation then turned to concussion testing, and I wanted to know if Elena saw an issue around disparities related to testing for MTBI, mild traumatic brain injury, sometimes referred to as a concussion. You know, I I do. Well, a lot of my work focuses on the cultural appropriateness and relevance of test items and how we score those items. There's not a lot of literature that will show you some of those differences. One of the things that I talk about a lot is cognitive style. And so what we tend to see is that a lot of our standardized tests are developed in a very systematic way where people from other cultural groups may not 
process or problem solve in a systematic way. Where we see the most disparities, I would say, is more so in things like uh, concussion knowledge of players from different backgrounds, the reporting trends. So even just saying something doesn't feel right, or I think I experienced a concussion, I should have more testing and going to the ER. There are statistics out there that show more of those kind of, I guess, environmental factors that could play a role in being diagnosed. Elena and I turned our attention to one of the topics she just mentioned, cognitive styles, the ways of thinking through and solving problems. Elena discussed two cognitive styles, a holistic or intuitive style, which focuses on the big picture, and an analytical style, which she sometimes refers to as a systematic approach. Elena says cognitive styles are cultural and they're developed by how we are raised. Because they are cultural, Elena believes that a better understanding of cognitive style by CSD educators can help students from culturally diverse backgrounds find success in CSD. More on that in a moment. Yeah, so cognitive style is basically the way that we problem solve. And so it's on. It, there's a spectrum where one end can be very analytical and another end is very intuitive or holistic. And the analytical side is the group that's very systematic. If they are giving a speech, they're probably going to talk in points, A, B, C, and D, where the holistic person may talk a little more in a story type of style. They may be a little more interactive with with the people in the environment around them. And so where this comes into play, there's been a lot of research about this, more so with children, particularly in our field, when we talk about Black children, because African-Americans or Black people tend to prefer a more holistic style However, schools and most standardized testing is all set up in a very systematic way. And so even though they know the information because they have to process it in a way that's not natural to them could lead to them having more incorrect responses. You recently wrote an article for the Journal of the National Black Association for Speech, Language and Hearing, uh, published again with your colleague at Howard, Shamika Stanford. The article is called Shifting the Mindset of Racism Through Cognitive Learning Styles in Communication Sciences and Disorders. In that article, you, you wrote, quote, while it's beneficial for students to increase their cognitive flexibility, educators should also become flexible in their cognitive styles during teaching and learning. As such, recognizing and supporting cognitive learning styles and their differences in the academic setting can serve as a starting point towards eliminating racial biases, stereotypes, and prejudice in CSD. To do this, CSD educators must take responsibility for their own cognitive rigidity in relation to cultural differences and become flexible in their understanding and teaching of different cognitive learning styles and thus ensuring cultural acceptance, educational equity, and academic success for Black students in CSD programs, end quote. Where would you recommend an educator that wanted to to learn more about their own cognitive styles and the cognitive styles of others? Where, where would you recommend that they start doing that work? The literature is primarily in other academic areas, like in business, in medical school, nursing. A lot of them have been utilizing this, but in the field of speech pathology, we have not so much. 
But there are screeners that you can find on Google that will give you an idea of what your cognitive style is. And that's important because we tend to teach others in our preferred style. So if I'm an analytical person, I'm going to teach others analytically because that's what I'm familiar with. And that's that's also the way that seems correct to me. But if we start to understand, okay, this is my style, but my student over here has a holistic style. How can I adjust and become more flexible in how I teach so that I can make sure I am giving them the best opportunity? It's something I hadn't considered in my own how I think about problem solving until we talked about this. And since then, I've noticed how I'm addressing different problems. And and I've tried to think about how others are maybe addressing a problem and whether it's if I'm doing it analytically or more of a holistic approach. It's been eye-opening for me. Yeah, that's really great. Because one of the things we talk about in the article is that when when one person has their own style and that's all that they see and the other person has their style and that's all that they see, then we have these communication breakdowns. Or that's when you start to say, hmm, this other person, they can't get this. They're not going to be able to do this task. And then we have the biases that follow along with that. And that can that can extend beyond race, right? (laughs) When someone doesn't process the way that you process. But I, I think that it's a great starting point. When I first learned about that, the first year of my doc program, I mean, it was like it opened a new world for me. And so I've made a lot of adjustments in being able to address both. So I actually, when I take the the quiz now, I actually come out as a split style. So in certain instances, I can be very analytical. In certain instances, I can be very holistic or intuitive. Yeah. And I think it benefits my students. Tell me about that. Sure. Uh, Yeah. So I try to set up my classes where I'm giving them a mixture of both ways of processing because they, one, they have to pass the praxis. They have to pass exams. Right. And the praxis is definitely a very analytical test. But they also have to be they have to be systematic in the way that they give their therapy. They have to be able to follow instructions and give instructions sometimes in a very structured way. But then they also need to be able to look at the whole picture and break down the parts and understand when their clients might be more intuitive than systematic. And so I think that you know, trying to give the students different ways of processing information, they figure out like what's easier for them, what's more challenging, and then how can they also adjust themselves when they go out to work with clients. Could you tell me what an example might be of a way that you present things in the two different cognitive styles? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, and I think these are things that a lot of instructors do, but you might not also, you might not realize that you're doing different cognitive styles. So in all of my classes, I always have just a neuro exam and that exam will have multiple choice. It will have short answer and it may have some problem solving questions in there, but it is very systematic. But I also will do a lot of case study activities where there's conversation, where you have to look at the whole picture to be able to pick apart the pieces to either assess or diagnose or develop a treatment plan for the client. And you're saying that sometimes these are associated with race, but not always. Right. Because I think that's where we have 
the most known aspects of differences between people because you can you can kind of look and see that visually, but also, you know, in other areas where it's just someone who's just different from you. Right. It could be someone who's the same race as you, same age, but you both process things different. And cognitive styles, we develop our cognitive styles through the way we grow up. So they are cultural in nature. And so if someone had a different experience growing up than you, even though you have all these other demographic factors that are similar, they may still process information differently than you. So not all black students are more intuitive because I have quite a few that are very systematic, but it's the matter of understanding where they are. Wonderful. Elena Davis, thank you so much for being a part of ASHA Voices today. Thank you for having me. We're continuing our look at traumatic brain injury with a special episode. We'll hear from an SLP and a psychologist about the ways the professions work together as a part of cognitive rehabilitation. Watch out for that episode. We mentioned Elena's Howard University colleague, Shamika Stanford, a couple of times during this episode. Shamika was a guest on the first episode of ASHA Voices, where she talked about the intersection of speech-language issues in the justice system. Find that episode in your podcast feed or on our website, leader.pubs.asha.org. Find more resources related to cultural responsiveness through ASHA's Office of Multicultural Affairs, or OMA. OMA helps ASHA members address culture, language, and diversity among professionals and those with communication disorders or differences. To learn more about OMA, visit ASHA.org and search for Multicultural. Finally, I want to mention you can go to ASHA.org to find additional resources on traumatic brain injury. I recommend the Practice Portal, which has resources for traumatic brain injury in adults and children. We'll put a link to those pages on the blog post for this podcast episode at leader.pubs.asha.org. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's Office of Government Affairs and Public Policy. You can find their latest resources about alternative payment models and value-based care online. Check them out at on.asha.org APM. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. <laughs>